Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. This week, we discuss Air Guitar, an essay by the American critic Dave Hickey about his not-really-chosen profession of art criticism. In this text, Hickey raises some interesting questions, such as, what is the nature of the relationship between a piece of criticism and the artwork it pertains to describe? What is the difference between what critics do and what artists make, and ultimately, What do criticism and art have to do with life and politics? Hickey cautions us against the, quote, police mentalities that strive to impose correct readings of art, unquote. Art and criticism are, for him, forms of social discourse. They are, to use McLuhan's term, probes for seeking and articulating the new, and they act as a corrective to our tendency to turn contingent views into hardened dogma. For Hickey, no artist can know ahead of time the full redemptive potential that her work may hold for society. It's the critic's job to articulate that potential as she experiences it, and the result at times can be the creation of a new constituency, what Gilles Deleuze might have called a people to come. This is why Hickey insists that art needs democracy and democracy needs art. The corporate and political interests that seek to control the message of art in our times are all after the same thing. They all seek to make us believe that their take on life and reality is final and complete. In other words, they want us to forget that all truth claims in this world are made against an immovable backdrop of mystery. Art and criticism call us back to this mystery. They put us all in the position of the first humans who looked up from the dusty ground and gasped at the stars. They aren't the result of a free society so much as the means by which such a society can come about. And speaking of free societies... Over the last couple of weeks, the Weird Studies Patreon has become a veritable bastion of free and open discourse, with brilliant patrons posting brilliant things about our brilliant conversations. It's brilliance all around, and we want you to be part of it. So head on over to Patreon and see if supporting Weird Studies can be your way of keeping art and democracy alive in these troubled times. Enjoy the show. Today we're talking about, what are we talking about? Dave Hickey, Air Guitar. An essay that appears in a book of the same title, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't know who Dave Hickey is, a really interesting guy. Uh, he won the MacArthur Genius Grant. Um, he has had a long career that has included stints as an A&R exec at Warner Brothers, as a rock critic for Rolling Stone and other magazines. As an art dealer who had a gallery in, I think, Austin, Texas, like in the 60s, as a freelance art critic and sort of man about arts. And for a number of years, he was a professor at the University of Las Vegas. He's lived much of his life in Las Vegas, which he stubbornly sticks up for. A lot of people think of Las Vegas as a cultural wasteland, and he argues that it is, in fact, the finest example of a vernacular of beauty that will be found anywhere. Uh, And he worked at UNLV for a number of years and recently has retired sort of in a huff, saying that he wants to have nothing to do with the academic world. Even when he was a part of the academic world, though, he both in his writing and in his interests generally, always kind of set himself apart from that academic world. And his essay, Air Guitar, appears in a volume of essays that was published in 1997. So this book is already rather old. But Air Guitar, the titular essay, is really kind of a, a defense for the act of criticism, 
mm-hmm. and for a life in the arts and a life working as a critic, but working as a critic and working as a bunch of other things. But he has a way of thinking of criticism when it's working or when it's justifiable as being the same kind of activity as any number of other ways that you can participate in an art scene. Just showing up at shows, for example, or being a fan, being part of a community, uh, a scene of people who care a lot about an art and who and who show up. For him, criticism when it's cracking, when it's working, is part of an art world. Yeah. And in this essay, he's trying to think about what kind of speech act criticism represents. And he's kind of dismissive in a way. He says yeah, that it's, totally. you know, He's what he's saying is that criticism um, is like the little tugboat or the little dinghy floating behind the yacht, right? Yeah. So it's kind of following the wake of the like the the, the works of art that criticism treats or analyzes or observes or appreciates uh, are the yacht, and then the critics are like writing little dinghies behind it. And he's like, that's a good thing because, yeah. in yeah. a sense, what he's saying is that. Criticism is the sign by which we know that a society is paying attention to life, to life. Because for Dickey, and this will come clear, the brightest and most, you know, multifarious, the most important, the most uh, brilliant occasion of life is the work of art. Or at least that's where life reveals itself to us. So criticism is a way to engage with life. And it is, in a sense, weak because... It can never live up. It can never be in itself what the art is, but it's the sign by which we know that we are engaging, we are participating in art and therefore in life. Yeah. Yeah. The first paragraph of this essay is well worth reading. And by the way, it's easy to find online. There's a PDF of it uploaded and we can put that in the show notes. Not a long essay. It's fun to read and I encourage all of our listeners to go and check it out. But anyway, here's the first paragraph. Colleagues of mine will tell you that people despise critics because they fear our power, but I know better. People despise critics because people despise weakness, and criticism is the weakest thing you can do in writing. It is the written equivalent of air guitar, flurries of silent, sympathetic gestures with nothing at their heart but memory of the music. It produces no knowledge, states no facts, and never stands alone. It neither saves the things we love, as we would wish them saved, nor ruins the things we hate. Edinburgh Review could not destroy John Keats, nor Diderot Boucher, nor Ruskin Whistler. And I like that about it. It's a loser's game, and everybody knows it. Even ordinary citizens, when they discover you're a critic, respond as they would to a mortuary cosmetician, vaguely repelled by what you do, yet infinitely curious as to how you came to be doing it. Right. (laughs) So when asked, I always confess that I am an art critic today because as a very young person, I set out to be a writer and did so with a profoundly defective idea of what writing does and what it entails. And so from here, having started off saying basically criticism is some weak shit and that is what I like about it. It's a weak mode of writing, but that's actually a good thing. And we can come back to why he thinks that, why that's a good thing. Um, He starts off by talking about how the criticism he arrived at came from a failure to achieve a certain ambition, and that is to create a kind of writing that would do justice to, um, shit, I need to, why did I close my motherfucking book? To ordinary existence, to ordinary reality. Yeah. You know, his early ambition is to transcribe what he calls the enigmatic whoosh of ordinary experience uh, and to somehow transmute that alchemically into writing. And in trying to do that, he goes by his admission through a series of different genres, trying to write poetry and like gonzo reportage or whatever. Novels, yeah. Experimental novels. And then ultimately he writes, I would, I would be forced to admit that all the volumes of Proust were nothing quantitatively compared to the 20 minute experience of eating breakfast on a spring morning at a Denny's in Mobile. 
and that the more authoritatively and extensively I sought to encode such an experience, the more profoundly it was obliterated from the immediacy of memory and transported into the imaginary realm of remembrance, invested with identity, shorn of utility, and polished up as an object of delectation. And I think this is a really important point. Super important point, yeah. Yeah, super important point. Because it, he's kind of um, zeroing in on a problem that's beset the art worlds. I'll say art world because it's in many disciplines, the art world in general, for over a century, much over like 150 years, which is this, this ideal whereby art might become a way for us to know what life was like. It's misquoting or, or taking Shakespeare out of context. You know, Shakespeare's famous line, uh, art is the mirror of nature, which, uh, by the way, is said by, as Oscar Wilde has pointed out, is said by Hamlet when he's using a play to try to test his uncle and mother to see if they're murderers. Um, he's using art in a way that I would call artifice. <laughs> um, that's when he says art's a mirror of nature. So what, what Hickey's saying is that he was taken by this modernist ideal, or this ideal that's been around, like it starts with realism in the 19th century, that art should somehow get to what real life was like. And this is what the situationists wanted. This is what the Dada guys wanted, ultimately. So a lot of art movements in, in the 20th century wanted to do, to get to the real, to real life. And um, what he was saying was that it can't, writing at least, can't do that. It can't get to real life. Because real life always has this incredible surplus, as he says, that you can't reduce to words, you can't capture, you can't represent it. And he realized that his artistic ambitions were unrealistic, were impossible to achieve. And so that's what led him to, to criticism. But I think that we could discuss that idea of, like, it's the old thing, like Aristotle, art imitates life, Right. That's the old idea. And it's an old Greek idea. And it's a way that philosophers put art in its place, right? And Plato in the Republic says that artists should be kept in line because they produce false or partial copies of real things. They're, they're badly representing reality. And so it became uh, very important for many philosophical programs over the centuries to put art in its place. And in a sense, that's what we see again with all these art movements in the 20th century, like Duchamp trying to get rid of the whole kind of uh, pictorial tradition, the kind of like, and, and trying to replace it with something that's more real, more concrete, more political. So it's a very interesting problem that Hickey had that and by, by having that problem, he was putting his finger on something really central, I think, uh, when it comes to discourse on art in, the, in modern times. And yet, at the same time, that enigmatic whoosh remains for him the sine qua non of art. Because yes. art itself is that enigmatic whoosh. Exactly. That there, is, there is something in art, the presence of art. And this is, to me, particularly obvious in music. I write about this in my book, Dig, um, that what we write about, when I say we, I'm talking about, you know, academics who write about music, musicologists or music analysts, ethnomusicologists or whatever, any of the many ologies that people are writing about music from. What we write about is the stuff that we can write about. It's the stuff that's amenable to prose. But what is not amenable to prose is the way music manifests in the life of the people who listen to it and for whom this music is intensely meaningful. If you were to canvas most people, almost everybody actually in our society, and find out what, what are the pieces of music that are most important to them, and thereby finding out what is the most important aspect of musical meaning. It would probably be, you know, those pieces of music that are encountered in the context of important moments in life, like when you fall in love, really truly fall in love for the first time, or the music that you listen to at the memorial service for a deceased parent, or music played at your wedding, or your first dance, or whatever. And the meaning of that music is not simply given by the occasion, but it is given by the intense emotions that you felt in that moment, at that place, at that time, whatever that place and time was, and its conjunction 
to music. But that shit is not something that we can write about by the tacit or explicit rules of academic discourse. So like if, you know, like if a kid were to write an essay, like let's say I'm teaching a freshman music and an analysis class and I assign a Bach prelude and fugue and some kid writes an essay telling me about how this just reminds them of like idyllic summers at their grandparents' cottage. I'd be like, well, that's all very nice, but that doesn't really count as something you can write in an academic paper because that's an experience that's unique to you, your experience of that music at that place and time. But that's not, as it were, fungible. It, it doesn't tell me anything about the music that is uh, transferable from the occasions of your life to the occasions of mine. So I'm not, I want to throw away that whole experiential, existential part of music listening and talk about the stuff where I can be pretty sure that you and I are on the same page of what we're talking about. Actually, this is the stuff that I wrote about in that uh, style as analysis piece that we yeah. did a show on um, several months ago. Uh, and the problem is that for... Almost everybody, everybody except those who have been housebroken to the culture of academia, this is insane. You've just thrown out what music means and you've capped only this tiny little bit that for almost everybody is like irrelevant. And yet we as academics sail forth in complacent self-regard believing that we have in fact isolated the only thing that matters, which is its form, its structure, the uh, the ideological circumstances of its original composition, whatever. Most people don't give a shit about that stuff. And my point here is to say that for Hickey, that enigmatic whoosh, that feeling that people have as art manifests in their life, that matters. And that you can't just simply say as an academic art historian or music historian or whatever, oh, well, that goes without saying. That's understood. In, no. in this essay, he says... It's the um, mystery. Yeah, he said, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He says, it goes without saying, it's just basically a way of denying it altogether. It's a way of alighting the essential mystery, which is the point of writing to begin with. Right. And, and so that mystery is important to him. But now the real problem that he wants to excavate in this essay is, then how do you write about it? How right. do you write about art in such a way that you're doing justice to the mystery, to what matters most in the music? And yet you are staying within the bounds of what writing properly can do. Right. Great. Um, so if I were to sum up what you said, we kind of have a choice. We have two possible approaches to music. Let's, I'm oversimplifying, but it's just for the sake of argument. On the one hand, I could say, well, the value of music comes from its experiential manifestation, how it occurred to me in my life. So I heard this song at my wedding. I was very touched. Therefore, this song is meaningful and important to me. And that's what matters. On the other hand, you have the musicologist says, well, that's okay. That's it's important to you. But as a piece of music, it's this particular analysis that I'm presenting that shows us its value or lack of value or its particular, what it actually signifies in the tradition, right? And, and not just to you, but to, to the tradition anybody. or to anybody. To yeah. anybody who understands what I'm talking about, this is what it is. I would say that I would go for an, neither A nor B in this case. Like, yeah. Because the real mystery for me is this. If I hear a song at a funeral... And it blows my mind. It breaks my heart. And then I move on. And I, every time I hear that song, I'm, that feeling comes back to me. Have I just made, and this is what a lot of people would argue, I've just, have I just made an association between what was going on in my life there and that particular melody, that particular song, and therefore it's just acting as a kind of like trigger to bring back those memories. Yeah, a Pavlovian sort of trigger. Or was the occasion of my hearing that song such that I could finally hear what that song yeah. was actually doing, which, which if true would open up a field of thought about this stuff that is really in between these two options we've had between the subjective, purely experiential take on what a work of art means and the purely theoretical 
sociological or even metaphysical take on what it means. Like mm. in, in a context where that third option is viable, then we can have the possibility of a form of criticism that aims for that thing, which the occasion made you see so yeah. that it is actually teachable. It is something you could communicate. It is something you could with enough, with the right chops as a writer express and it mm. would be what is actually in the song, not just your subjective interpretation on it. It goes through the objective, like the, the, yep. uh, the subjective. The subjective is part of the loop you need, one, one of the loops you need to make to tie this knot, but the ultimate knot isn't just purely subjective. It has yeah. something true in it. It, it. So criticism is actually becomes a way to express certain truths about life by looking at works of art. And I think that that's a... That's an option that's, you know, seldom mentioned or thought about, it seems mm -hmm. to me. But Hickey is very careful to emphasize that writing conceived in the right spirit never replaces the art. No. He's got a great line in here. Um, you know, if um, writing, if it was written successfully into its historical instant, and we can loop back to what he means by written into its historical instant. Um, if it's written into its historical instant, writing could never actually replace the work or banish it into the realm of knowledge. If the work survived, the writing would simply bob after it like a dinghy in the weight of a yacht. If the work sank from sight, well, too bad. The writing could disappear after it into the bubbles. So the kind of um, the kind of writing that for Hickey doesn't work is what almost always happens in academic or for that matter professional criticism like newspaper criticism, uh, and you can see any number of examples of this uh, in your life. I don't uh, I don't even need to give examples. The easy alternative to the kind of much more difficult kind of writing encounter with art that. Hickey is writing about here. The easy alternative is just to circumnavigate the occasion of seeing something to quote unquote professionalize art criticism into a branch of academic art history to presume that works of art are already utterances in art language that need only be translated into a better language to achieve perfect transparency. Right. In, in this way, the practice of criticism is transformed into a kind of Protestant civil service dedicated to translating art language into a word language that neutralizes its power in the interests of public order. Yes. So that's the problem of applying a theory and using a theory as a kind of gatekeeping device to give people access to art in a sense that, that the professorial class the cliched, stereotypical professorial class would say that, well, ultimately our job is to tell you what this art means. Yeah. And when I've done my criticism, my job as a critic, you now have access to the work of art. Mm -hmm. um, and so he says at one part uh, that that type of thinking is undemocratic because it contradicts the basic principle of art as a kind of occasion for community shaping, community making, and for human on human expression. Uh, it it adds a kind of middleman who ultimately always works in the interests of authority and power, of controlling interpretations, of controlling yep. controlling participation, and uh, he's arguing for the critic as. Uh, potentially the heroic figure who would remind people or invite people to participate directly. At least this is how I'm reading between the lines here. By sharing my impression, my experience of artwork X, I'm encouraging you to look at art like I do and to experience life uh, as I do, you're, you're, to look deeper into things. So it's not like I'm not trying to sell you my interpretation. I'm trying to sell you the wonders of interpretation in general, I'm trying to mm. sell you the wonders of participation. I'm trying to sell you the the, the mystery of life. Yeah, when I'm talking about this, so it's very different. That word participation is a key one for Hickey. Right. You know, there's another essay in this book called "Romancing the Looky Lose," where Hickey articulates this basic category distinction that he's making between the kind of art critics that are uh, using their powers for good and not evil and the kind of people that he does not like. And, uh, 
his dad, who is a jazz musician, called them looky-loos. He himself calls them spectators. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this essay actually starts with a, an account of a conversation he had with Waylon Jennings. This is back when he was a Rolling Stone reporter. So he starts off this essay making a distinction between looky-loos uh, or, or spectators and participants. And Waylon Jennings talks about how, you know, when he, at the beginning of his career, he was playing in small bars. The people listening to him were the people who shared a form of life with him. And as he got more and more famous and started singing in stadiums, he's like, I don't even know who the people are I'm singing to anymore. And that kind of sense of like, there being a difference between people who are just there to spectate whose investment is basically that they consumed. They bought a ticket, they bought an album, but they're not participating in the scene that gives rise to a form of art. So Hickey has some wonderfully poisonous words about the spectators. Is like, spectators invariably align themselves with authority. They have neither the time nor the inclination to make decisions. They just love the winning side, the side with the chic building, the gaudy doctorates, and the star-studded cast. They seek out spectacles whose value is confirmed by the normative blessing of institutions and corporations. In these venues, they derive sanction, pleasure, or virtue from an accredited source, and this makes them feel secure, more a part of things. Participants, on the other hand, do not like this feeling. They lose interest at the moment of accreditation, always assuming there is something better out there, something brighter and more desirable, something more in tune with their own agendas. They may be wrong, of course. The truth may indeed reside in the vision of full professors and corporate moguls, but true participants persist in not believing this. They continue looking. Yeah. And that's a pretty important this, line. This idea of participants is important, I think. Even though it sounds kind of elitist, he's like, there are the real fans and then there are the fakes, the hip people and the square people. Well, yeah. I think there's some truth to that. I think that Waylon Jennings, uh, you know, report of how his career has altered uh, his relationship to his fans and to the music is really poignant. It's really something to, to read. I mean, and you can find this essay online, I'm sure, and you should you read can. it because it's really good what uh, Jennings says at the beginning. Um the the thing is that, and this gets to something about art, uh, and again, it's a contradiction of the idea that art imitates life, that art is somehow derivative of life, that you have life, and then some people try to represent parts of that, and they call it those representations art. What Hickey's getting at here is something like what Deleuze says about art. Deleuze and Guattari, but also Deleuze on his own, both speak about the artist as uh, the true artist, they don't use those words, but that's what they mean. The true artist being someone engaged in, in creating a minority. And this touches on Hickey's attachment to democracy as a fundamental, yep. uh, uh, of, uh, as of being a fundamental value to art. You create a minority through art. There's Paul Klee famously said uh, at one of his exhibitions, the peuple manque, the people are missing. I can see, I'm at, I'm at my exhibition, all the paintings are there and there are people in the room, but the people that I made this for are missing. And Deleuze uses that to argue that an artist is always trying to create a new world. He's always calling for a people to come, a people of the future. And that you cry out, you know, when you make art, it's actually a cry in the wilderness calling a people forth. And that people, that community that, that the art makes possible, you think about in my essay on uh, hyperstition that I put up on our website at some point, I, I talk about this it's in the context of punk. It's on our Patreon, right? I think so. Uh, yeah. I talk about it in the context of punk, right? And that, that the first yeah. punk song ever brought forth the possibility of the world called punk. Not mm -hmm. just the, the people, the style, the kind of the, the, the setting, the kind of you know, dumpster, garbage riddled alleyway world of the early punk movement. Uh, mm -hmm. All that was kind of called forth by the art. The art wasn't representing something that already existed. It was calling into being something that didn't yet exist. Mm -hmm. And um, at one point in this essay, I think it's an air guitar actually, uh, Hickey talks about Oscar Wilde's famous reversal 
of the phrase. Oscar Wilde said, life imitates art. And he meant it very literally. And it comes from an essay called The Decay of Lying, which I think we could do a show on sometime. That'd be great. Um, in which Wilde argues that, in fact, we only see in nature and in life the things that art has given us to see. That before, uh, let's say, a painter saw the beauty and called forth the beauty of the London smog, the London fog, uh, the fog had no value for people. But the minute that that painter brings forth that world, that synchronicity of the fog and the sunlight at this time of day with the gulls and the ships and the, the harbor, the minute that that painter saw, brought forth that synchronicity, created that synchronicity, and when in terms of artistic creation, it's really ambiguous what's perception, what's creation. It's kind of one and the same. That, that London was transformed. London was materially transformed at that moment. It became something it hadn't been before. Even to the extent that, I would argue, even people who have no idea that that painter ever lived, you know, let's say, I don't know which painter is the one who kind of first depicted the London fog, but even a person who doesn't know can see from then on, somehow, because the universe is different, can see the beauty of the fog, can see the meaning of the fog. Yep. And um, it's in this sense that art doesn't represent, art doesn't represent life, art creates life. It adds more life. And that's why Hickey says that the work of art is the, the, the brightest instantiation of life, because it's the, the creation of new life. It's the creation of new possibilities. And that is not something that you can uh, reduce to a historical period or movement. It's something that's atemporal, ahistorical. It exists in a sense outside of time. It has its own time. And uh, sometimes it takes centuries for the work of art to do its work and bring about the world that it called forth. Mm -hmm. But it's in that world, it's in, it's in participating in that world that an art, an, a work of art calls forth that we become participants. And in that sense, we're kind of united with the artist in this new minority that can only yep. really have existence, that can only exist and thrive in a, in a, broadly speaking, democratic milieu, in a milieu that allows people to form minorities, to form communities. Yep. And that's what makes academic or like hyper-academic or, or uber-academic takes on art and the professorial and cr critical tendency to try to box art in and to historicize art, that's what makes those movements so antithetical, not just to art making, but to democracy, to, to yes. freedom. Yeah, because, uh, okay, so like in another essay that we didn't really work on for this episode, uh, I didn't reread it. I don't think I shared it with you. It's an essay that appeared, I think, in Raritan magazine called Buying the World. Uh, Hickey has a kind of a, he has a very free market approach to artistic expression where he, I mean, this is part and parcel of his whole pro Las Vegas thing, where for him, the capitalist sort of like casino capitalist system that we live in is actually a vast engine for the creation of little democratic minorities, constituencies around aesthetic moments. And he gives us an example, custom cars, like hot rods, which he's really into. Uh, but, you know, in that essay, he's talking about how the, and, and I'm going to pick up on something you said, JF, this calling forth, the idea that an artwork calls into existence, a mode of life, a whole vision of life. And likewise, people who elect themselves self-elect into these constituencies, the people who show up, the participants, um, they too call forth something. They call forth those constituencies. They call forth scenes simply even by the simple deictic act of saying, wow, that's beautiful. And so right. the example from a custom car show or, or even just seeing a guy in a really souped up ride driving down the street and you're walking with a group of your friends and you're like, shit, that's beautiful. Look at that fucking thing. You know, that for him is a fundamental democratic moment it's because it's a moment where I am picking up on something. I'm picking a little bit of beauty out of this world we live, which is saturated in signs, saturated with things to look at and listen to and to read and to absorb. I'm picking something out of that flux and, and by saying, in, invoking the category of beauty, beauty, by saying that is beautiful, I am 
conjuring into existence at least the possibility of a constituency of people who are going to look at it and be like, fuck yeah, or maybe, or no, not at all, or something, but like that's the democracy of the thing. Yeah. You know, you can participate and other people are free to disagree or to form their own kind of counter publics. But this for him is like the fundamental action by which art happens. And what's undemocratic about, say, the academic system, you know, and he's writing from an art world, like visual arts world perspective. So for him, the black hat would be maybe the Whitney Biennial. Or something where, you know, the artists who have been crowned by the art system as the next hot artists, the artists who we must all be paying attention to. Well, some curator with a fancy PhD has decided that. Yeah. They have created a community by fiat and it's backed up by money and institutional muscle. And then the people who show up for that aren't engaging in this democratic process of like calling forth art worlds into being through their spontaneous aesthetic reactions. They're just kind of consuming. They're like, you know, going along with it. Or maybe they're like, I don't like it. I want something else, you know, yeah. like, like little baby birds with their mouths open, waiting for the institution to drop a little wiggling worm of sanctioned art into their beak. Yeah. And this for him is a profoundly undemocratic process. You look at concept art, which is pretty much, you know, the de facto kind of mode or mood of art today uh, at the places like the Whitney Biennial. It's not the only thing that's there, but there's a lot of concept art is it could only be, could only attain the heights it has attained in a society run by academics and bureaucrats. Yeah. Um, I know this from working in the film and TV world in an industry that's subsidized. I'm a Canadian. So our film and television industry is a subsidized industry, much like the fisheries and the Maritimes right? It wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the government giving money to artists to make their work. So how do you get money? Well, you get money by getting grants. How do you get a grant? You get a grant by writing a great grant proposal. The real work is that grant proposal. And what is a grant proposal? It is inevitably and necessarily a translation into concepts of vision that has to do with affect. You're basically trying to conceptualize something that you probably shouldn't be conceptualizing. And so it creates a culture of conceptualization in a domain that is specifically and ontologically prior to conceptualization that has to do with affect and feeling and experience. It doesn't have to do with intellectual thoughts, but you necessarily in a system like the one I work in need to conceptualize your artistic visions. And what that creates, and we've seen, we have a couple of generations of this now, and I'm, I'm just, it's not just the Canadian film and TV industry, it's like the whole machinery of the art world, is that art gets more and more conceptual. And then uh, it's like an emperor's new clothes thing, where you show up and like the guy just right now is exhibiting in at the uh, Venice Biennale, he's uh, exhibiting the, the, the emails of Hillary Clinton, He's printed oh, yes, 62,000 right. pages and put them on tables and people go and could read the emails. The, the room looks is set up to look like the Oval Office and the emails are there. It's a nothing, but it's in a culture, in an art world that has, you know, anointed it, you know, and therefore people feel obliged to go there and have a kind of like pseudo emotional reaction to this unmeaning event, this, this nonsensical, absurd, hyper-political gimmick and then the articles are written and that's the way the and meanwhile you know you might have a guy uh working in vegas doing like portraits of people on the street right who's creating something of real value but we can't talk about that actually i had a great conversation with my buddy gabe yesterday about tattoos so i've got a few tattoos but i'm not thoroughly tatted up however don't tell anybody, but I have secret ambitions to become one of those like totally tatted up dudes. Oh yeah. I keep, I keep telling my family that I'm, I'm going to just be, you know, very, uh, I've heard it's hard to stop when you start. 
I'm, I'm, I'm going to be restrained, but I'm not going to be restrained. Yeah, it is. It's an addiction. Once you got, start getting ink, you just want more ink. And I love everything about tattoos. Uh, I love, I mean, of course, everybody has seen really nasty ink. Everybody's seen really bad tattoos. But good tattoos, the best tattoos, and let me tell you, like the shop that I go to, Time and Tide Tattoo in Bloomington, Indiana, those motherfuckers are artists. But they're working within a, a vernacular of beauty. This is not the Venice Biennale. This is not, you know, the the Whitney. This is not an institutional form, but nevertheless, it is a realm of art making and art appreciation. But, you know, my friend Gabe was pointing out, he was like, uh, and he, he doesn't have tattoos, but he used to date somebody who did. So he used to spend a lot of time hanging out in this shop. And he was just always really struck by what a beautiful art scene a tattoo shop is. Right. Because people come in they have ideas, like maybe I want to get a you know, like a, a fucking skull with worms wriggling out of its sockets or some shit or, or whatever. Maybe they don't even know what they want. They just want something beautiful to be put on their body. And, you know, the tattoo artist will be like, okay, well, about how big do you want it? Or like, where do you want to put it? Um, like, here's some ideas, you know, and they've got whole books full of, um, flash art like you know yeah sort of almost almost prefab designs templates or whatever yeah templates but these guys are artists and they do they do their own thing they'll work with the customer and collaborate and come up with ideas sometimes the customers will be like well just you know do your thing make something um and you know a lot of the time these guys are making just very by the numbers pieces but sometimes they're making things that really are calling forth you know, kind of artistry, but the whole thing is like, there are no non-participants in that situation. Right. Right. It's a world in which beautiful well, things are made according to the most banal calculations, like where in your body do you want it? How much do you want to pay? Stuff like that. Nobody's making a big deal of it, but that calling forth into existence mm -hmm. is happening constantly. I, I would like, argue that's that- That's a dope, that's a dope fucking tattoo. I want something like that, you know? I would argue that today, though, tattoos become mainstream enough to have spectators. Um, and you can go to Coachella and look at uh, certain, you know, um, of, I don't know. I don't want to judge. But I think that there is a spectator culture now in tattoo, although I agree with everything you just said. I just think that, you know. You know, it's, in, it's, it's inevitable. I, I think yeah. that, uh, and you know, fine. the idea of co-optation, the idea that, like, at a certain point, if a scene ends up gaining any kind of steam at all, the spectators will show up. And that's part of the democratic process as well. That's, exactly. Yeah, right, right. So I'm that's not trying part to put of it the, down. That's part of the deal. And Hickey sort of says like, and this is implicit in one of the quotes I read earlier, he's like, and participants, once they feel like a scene isn't their scene, they're just going to move on. Right. They'll just find something else. But uh, uh, And that's I, okay. Because and ultimately... Because it has to do with history. These are all processes enacted in time. Right. And that's a really important point that Hickey's trying to make. But you were going to say something. Yeah, I was I just going to say that you. what you just, your example of the tattoo parlor as a kind of place where art's happening and opposing that to something like the Venice Biennale, which where it maybe is a place where some art, but a lot of non-art is happening. Um, uh, yeah, there's because, a lot of non-art happening in a tattoo parlor as well. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, if we were to like, you know... Um, well, let's, let's look at it. Let's say that the tattoo parlor may be more conducive still to the creation of yeah. art. Maybe, than, maybe a healthier yeah. place for art to happen. Right. That's, that's kind of what I'm trying to say. That has to do, that touches on something that Hickey says in his, in his essay, Air Guitar, which I think is super important, which is the ordinariness of art. Mm -hmm. Um, that art is not special. Uh, and I think that's really important. And it's actually, I think it's essential, paradoxically, to recognize the ordinariness of art before you can recognize the absolute weirdness of art. Um, and there's a paragraph I want to read here. He says, the justification for this pretense to disengagement derives, and he's talking about now our dis general disengagement uh, from art. The justification of this pretense for, to disengagement derives from our Victorian habit of marginalizing the experience of art, of treating it as if it were somehow special, and lately, as if it were somehow curable. 
This is a preposterous assumption to make in a culture that is irrevocably saturated with pictures and music, in which every elevator serves as a combination picture gallery and concert hall. The question of whether we can enjoy or even decipher the world we see without the experience of music seems to me pretty much a no-brainer. In fact, I can't imagine a reason for categorizing any part of our involuntary ordinary experience as, quote, unesthetic or for imagining that this quotidian aesthetic experience occludes any, quote, real or, quote, natural relationship between ourselves and the world that surrounds us. All we do by ignoring the live effects of art is suppress the fact that these experiences, in one way or another, inform our every waking hour. So what he's doing here is putting forward an argument for an aesthetic universe, a universe where the aesthetic yep. cannot be subtracted from the sum of experience. And this is something, again, he shares with Wilde who he says here and is elsewhere in this essay is one of his great influences or one of his great mentors, at least uh, the artic- the uh, essay, The Decay of Lying, is that Wilde was very much into decorative arts, um, interior decorating, architecture, uh, fashion. These things for him were very important because it's through these decorative arts that we see how even the weird mystical power of uh, Leonardo da Vinci or uh, Michelangelo uh, is is participating in a process that is actually all around us all the time, and that it's through the decorative arts that we can see how art is actually part of our ordinary experience of life. It's a valuation or, or validation of the aesthetic nature of ordinariness and of everyday life itself. So I think that's that's really important. So you can see how the role of the critic in a world like that changes. It becomes kind of essential because the critic is kind of a guide in an aesthetic universe. It's the guy who'll point out the hot rod and, and, and you know, call us to its beauty. It's the guy that will point out the London fog and see, wow, there's beauty in this too. It's like this weak position of just being a participant in something bigger than you becomes yes. kind of essential. Yep. Um, and very important. And that brings us back to the main question that Hickey wants to answer in Air Guitar, which is what is the role of criticism? Right. And it's exactly as you describe. It's a weak role because you're not essential. You are always sort of secondary. He's like the art comes first. It's his metaphor of the art being the yacht and the criticism being the dinghy that follows along behind it. Or he has another uh, Wildean metaphor for the relationship of art and criticism that uh, he says, you know, the paintings in my house, and uh, he is a collector of art as well as uh, an art critic. There's paintings in my house that I've written about. And he's like, those paintings remain as fresh and vivid every day that I see them as uh, as as the first day I saw them or, or as fresh and vivid as when I wrote about them, whereas my writing about them gets more faded and yellowed and tatty with every passing year. And he, his analogy is it's like the portrait of Dorian Gray, right. where the it's, it's like a reverse Dorian Gray, where the painting of the man remains ever fresh. It remains pure and unchanging, whereas the man himself is moldering away in an attic. That's kind of the analogy that uh, Hickey is using, that the, the painting remains forever new. Yeah. His engagement with it, his own lived experience with it as written down, really only memorializes a moment of looking. And as that moment recedes into history, it grows more and more stale, yellowed. It served its purpose because the thing is that, you know, the artworks are not historical, right? They, they in a sense, stay outside of history. But the democratic cultures that they call into existence, they are historical yeah. and they exist in time. And every intervention that a participant makes in order to constitute those publics, in order to perpetuate them, to uphold them, to maintain them, all of those things are part of its process. It's unfolding, but ultimately all of it is kind of doomed to obscurity. In a sense, I think for him, the great impiety of criticism is to seek monumental permanence, to seek to make an utterance about a work of art that in some sense will replace the work of art because you're arrogating that classic status to yourself. Like my statement will stand forever as the canonic statement of what this 
piece of art is about. And thereby, I've kind of replaced the work of art. Well, now you don't even need to look at the fucking painting. You just read my important essay on it. And and this for him is the exact opposite of what criticism is supposed to do. Right. So uh, here's a question. So he's pretty dismissive of his own writing in this. Um, I'm not quite, I'm not sure I agree with him because in a sense, his text becomes for me much like the paintings on his wall. His criticism Mm -hmm. for me is a kind of work of art. And I think that he would agree. I'm sure that he would agree that certain novels fulfill the conditions of works of art. So it is possible to write texts that have the same stature as the paintings in his apartment. I think so, so too. Of course he does. I think, he, yeah, right. I think he's being maybe a little modest. Right. Maybe, maybe a necessary modesty because he's trying to establish the correct relations of art and democracy. Right. No, I think he's, I agree. I think he's making a good point. But the question is, is it possible for a critic not to replace works of art? But to but make to, artworks to, themselves. To make artworks themselves. I would yeah. say, yeah. yes. I Often agree. unintentionally. I think that... I think that Freud's writings on art are in themselves works of weird fiction, but I don't think he mm. would have liked that. No, but probably I, not. But they have a kind of perennial value. They, they don't age in a sense because they hit on something that isn't just merely trying to represent life as Freud saw it, but it's kind of creating a new way of seeing life, a new yeah. way of, a new mode of being. Yeah. So maybe yeah. the critic should read this with a pinch of salt, you know, Yeah. Um, because it may be still be possible to be a critic and an artist at the same time. I think Will, I think uh, Wilde believed that for sure, that the oh, cr- absolutely. Critic, critic could be an artist. There aren't many of them. Well, there are many let's artists. Be, let's be <laughs> real, but yeah. Yeah, maybe. I think that uh, one interesting angle that uh, Hickey develops in the book Air Guitar is the idea that basketball in, a many, in many ways is the ultimate figure for what he means by democracy and art. That's actually the preceding essay, the essay that comes immediately before Air Guitar is uh, an essay... Uh, called The Heresy of Zone Defense. And I should say that I'm not a basketball fan and I'm agnostic as to uh, any particular argument that uh, Hickey is making about basketball. But he looks at the original guiding principles of basketball as written down by James Naismith in 1891. So he writes the, the rules, the basic principles of basketball, and then he adds his own little gloss. And each gloss gives you a sense that like the game of basketball is almost a microcosm for that participatory art world that he's talking about. So number one, principle number one, there must be a ball. It should be large. The gloss is, this is impression expectation of Connie Hawkins and Julie Serving. Okay, whatever. He's talking about basketball shit, which I don't really care about. But, you know, think about it. Uh, there must be a ball. There must be art, Right. The, the ball in this allegory is art. It must be large. It should be something that you can grasp easily, but also is easily passable. That's, that's the thing with basketball because it's a game of passing. Okay, number two, there shall be no running with the ball. Hickey adds, thus mitigating the privileges of owning portable property. Extending ownership of the ball is a virtue in football. Possession of the ball in basketball is never ownership. It is always temporary and contingent upon your doing something with it. See where he's going with this? Number three, no man on either team shall be restricted from getting the ball at any time that it is in play. The gloss, thus eliminating the job specialization that exists in football, by whose rules only those players in skill positions may touch the ball. The rest just help. In basketball, there are skills peculiar to each position, but everyone must run, jump, catch, shoot, pass, and defend. And that's also, you can kind of see like, okay, in this kind of utopian art world, Except it's not a utopia because utopias don't exist. And the kind of things that he's talking about exist all over the place. For example, in the tattoo parlor that I sometimes find myself in. Um, In this world of art, he's talking about the idea of a specialized critic doesn't really make sense. You might 
as part of your participation in the scene, write some words down on page and you might even get them published. But you were also showing up. You were also just like buying a ticket and hanging out with all everyone else. You are also attending parties. You were also conversing and bullshitting and disagreeing and arguing with your friends. Everybody is playing. The ball is constantly being passed around. Everybody gets their hand on the ball. Being a critic doesn't make you special. It just makes you one of the kinds of people who are passing the ball. Okay, number four. Both teams are to occupy the same area, yet there is to be no personal contact. And the gloss. Thus, no rigorous territoriality nor any rewards for violently invading your opponent's territory unless you score. The model for football is the drama of adjacent nations at war. The model for basketball is the polyglot choreography of urban sidewalks. And I like that too. Because it's just sort of like that sense of promiscuous mingling. Um, and in a purely institutional sense, you can kind of see like what he's ultimately against in academia. I mean, fuck, he worked in a university for years. He's not against universities themselves as such. What he's against is this idea that there's an adjacency. There's the art world that's walled off in the college campus. And then there's everybody else. Spectators people who are just going to passively accept the dictates of the academic priesthood. And this is absolutely inimical to his idea of what an art world should be. And then finally, number five, the goal shall be horizontal and elevated. And the gloss here, the most Jeffersonian principle of all, labor must be matched by aspiration. To score, you must work your way down court, but you must also elevate ad astra. Nice. Nice. I think that democracy is not that popular among philosophers. There aren't many philosophers who stand up for democracy. I think it's telling that those philosophers, or at least many of the ones who do stand up for democracy, are also philosophers who tend to really value art. And um, uh, Dewey is an example. Uh, there might be a, a connection between art and democracy. Maybe we need to realize that although I think both you and I would agree that any particular work of art is ultimately ahistorical and therefore apolitical, the occasion for art making, the world we need to create for art to be, for the apolitical to come into being, is always political. Is always political and and the ideal one is kind of a social democracy. There's a moment in this where he makes a reference to uh, Thomas Jefferson again. He says, I, I like to think that this is what Thomas Jefferson had in mind when he reconstituted that French trinity of liberté, égalité, fraternité as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, privileging our quest for quotidian equanimity and implicitly freeing us from the bonds of tribal brotherhood so we might perform the more cosmopolitan tasks of equal citizenship. Certainly this intertwining of pleasure and justice is what Emerson had in mind when he insisted that all constructions of public virtue must be tested on the anvil of private happiness. And this goes back to my big protest that I keep repeating to myself as I get bothered by this world is that all I want is for people to leave me the fuck alone. And it's like, it's like a, a social democracy. <laughs> this is democracy. something you and I have in common, yeah. bro. I just want to do my thing. I want you to do your thing. And that spirit of private happiness being more important than fraternity, than brotherhood, than tribalism, is kind of the key note of social democracy for me. And it's what we're, we're in danger of losing now. And if we lose that, if we lose the, that validation of private happiness, meaning of private moments, of the moment at the funeral where you were touched by that song by Céline Dion, if we lose our language for articulating the importance of such moments, it's not just art we're going to lose. It's freedom. It's our freedom to be who we are. The freedom to become what only we can become. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. 
Thank you for listening.